Hello and welcome to Talking Scared. I'm your host, Neil McRobert, and this week, you may wince a little, because we're talking about the very painful realities of motherhood with Katrina Munro. Katrina is the author of last year's They Drown Our Daughters and the brand new Graveyard of Lost Children. This new novel is a surprisingly dark tale of malign inheritance, both psychological and supernatural. It features changeling lore and a menacing black-haired woman who may have you peering into the corner of your room at night. We talk about all of those delicious ingredients, plus the motif of wells in horror fiction, the creepiest mental health condition I've ever heard of, and the physical toils of having a kid. Yeah, buckle up, lads. I promise you, (laughs) this will be the only horror podcast of the week to feature the phrase stool sample. If that hasn't frightened you off, and if you want more horror chat from me, you can get loads, like really loads, more episodes via Patreon. You just sign up for a few dollars at patreon.com slash talkingscaredpod and listen to me ask extra questions and do deep dives whilst feeling good about yourself for supporting indie podcasting. Yeah. But for now, come with me to an old, cold, institutional building. Amongst all the screaming women inside, one in particular is looking for you. Let's talk scared. Hello, Katrina. Welcome to Talking Scared. How are you today? I'm great. How are you? I'm very well. As I just said, I've been rushing around trying to sort my dog out of the vet. He's fine, but it's been a stressful afternoon. Um, it's quite nice to be sitting down doing this now. Right. Um, whereabouts in the world are you? I'm in Minneapolis, Minnesota. So as far north as you can get pretty much before hitting Canada. Okay, right. That That's a part of the US that I just get baffled by. I never know where anything is. I've got the rest sort of mapped in my head. Is that where St. Cloud is? Yes, St. Cloud is in Minnesota. It's probably about an hour from where I am. I heard a, a, a country and western song years ago called A Bus to St. Cloud. And ever since I heard <laughs> it, I've just been fascinated by it. It just sounds like the most wonderful place, St. Cloud. I've always wanted to go. It. I mean, I don't think it's worth it. I wouldn't go. No? Oh, okay. <laughs> no. <laughs> Dreams punctured. Yeah, sorry about it. Minneapolis is much better. You should come to Minneapolis. Okay, right. I'll, I will. If I'm getting that far, though, I'm, I'm going to St. Cloud. <laughs> Um, right, listen, that's a lot That's a lot of preamble. You're here to talk about your brand new book, not road trips to innocuous towns in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> um, the Graveyard of Lost Children. It's laced with creepiness, far more than I expected, and we'll get to all of that. But first of all, can you introduce it? Can you tell us a little bit of what this this dark gem of a book is about? Yeah, sure. So uh, Graveyard of Lost Children is about a woman who, when she was a child, her mother thought she was a changeling and figured the only way that she could get her daughter back was to trade her uh, with the dead woman at the bottom of the well on her family's property. Um, Thankfully, that didn't happen because the main character is now an adult and married and she's about to give birth to her own child. And she does. And it's a very complicated birth, but Her daughter's here. Everything's great. Except as the days pass, she's starting to notice that something is wrong with her child. And she wonders if maybe 
the thing that her mother saw in her is now happening to her and her daughter. First questions first, the title, right? I don't normally ask about titles, but in this case, it dawned on me really late on in the book that I don't really know what that title means in relation to the story, because it's not as literal as it sounds. Where did you get the graveyard of lost children from? So the this I feel like this is going to be kind of a letdown of an answer. I actually did not come up with the title for this book. Um, the title that I came up with when I was originally writing it was Mommy's Little Girl. Um, but when you go through the process of traditional publishing, they often come up with dozens of different titles that they think will test better uh, with test audiences. Graveyard of Lost Children is the one that won out at the end of the day. We came up with dozens and dozens of different titles, um, trying to figure, find the right one that would make readers, you know, go, Oh, that sounds great. Let me pick that up. I honestly, I might get in trouble for this. I, (laughs) I like the title, (laughs) but, um, I, I, I myself struggle with trying to find the connection between the title and the rest of the book. I, I, it feels right. It's one of those things that for me, because I read it or I, I wrote it, I wrote it. Um, I hear the title and it feels connected to the story because the story lives in this kind of ethereal zone in my brain where just vibes happen and the connections work. But asking me to spell out how it connects, I I don't know that that's something I can answer because it's it's one of those things that just exists in my brain. I'm glad you said that because I feel the same way about it. I mean, I didn't write the book, but it feels right. We've read the book. We know what happens. I can kind of force a connection there, you know, and it is a really enigmatic title. I mean, it wants, it makes you want to read the book, but it did suggest to me that this would be a very different book to the one it turned out to be. It made me think it would be this kind of gothic, flamboyant, almost whimsical novel, when in fact, it's like an authentically dark and authentically scary story there are certain scenes in this that gave me genuine chills and i haven't read your first novel they drown our daughters and i suppose because i haven't yet read that and this book is so at odds with what i thought it would be my question is is this representative of of your work and your imagination it is because um the i i am a sucker for an allegory i really love a story that has um it has that under layer that if you really want to pick it apart, you can, but you don't necessarily have to. And the things that I write always have that, you know, that surface level story, like in this case, it's it's the changeling story. It's, you know, a, a woman who is just trying to figure out how she is supposed to exist with this new role, this new identity as a mother, when um, all of these, you know, supernatural seeming things are happening around her, but it is also about her coming to terms with her own feelings and her own sadness and find, finding validity in those things. And that's something I write about quite a bit um, with uh, They Drown Our Daughters. It was it was similar in that it, there is still a, a complicated mother-daughter relationship there, but that one is a little bit more about what it feels like to come home and realize that you are a different person, uh, separate from your family, separate from where you grew up, how claustrophobic that can, that can Mm -hmm. be. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, 
it's indicative to my writing in that it it there's more to it if you want to plumb the depths. But um, I try to be uh, different if possible. I don't want someone to to pick up my book and know exactly what's going to happen or what they're going to find because they think they know me. I would like them to be a little bit surprised. Yeah. Well, we are here to plumb the depths today, so don't be afraid to just get your hands dirty. That That's fine. All right. The reason I asked that question is I, I read an interview with you where you, you were talking about your route to publication and you said that They'd Ran Our Daughters was you submitted it and then it was kind of rejected. And then they said to you, if you tweak this and make it more obviously horror, it's a green light. And and then I thought, well, that's interesting because you wrote a book that you had to tweak to make more horror. And now you've written a book that is way more horror than I predicted or, or expected. So have you kind of learned to em- embrace full-blooded nastiness now? Oh, absolutely. Totally. I, I, I say all the time that I, I did not realize that I was a horror writer until I was told I was a horror writer. <laughs> <laughs> because the majority of the things that I would write, um, I, I listened relatively recently to your interview with Kelly Link and how um, mm. you guys spoke a little bit about the the link between horror and fairy tales and how they're kind of like the original horror stories. A lot of the stuff that I wrote up until this point, and even now, are kind of rooted in some sort of fairy tale element or a folk tale because they are they are my passion. I love fairy tales. Um so anything I wrote would have that basis. So in it, it would inevitably have that creepy factor, but I never really dug into that because I was aiming for dark fantasy or I was like leaning too hard into like the Neil Gaiman vibes. It, I was mm-hmm. trying to find my place and I, I didn't really find it until my editor at Poison Pen Press, she basically said to me, this is a horror novel. If you can make it more blatantly horror, then we're all in. And so the first one, it took, it took quite a bit of tweaking and it's, it's one of those things you're never going to be totally happy with, but I, I am proud of the product that, or the book that, that came out of it. But when it came to writing Graveyard of Lost Children, I, I leaned full in. I remember the first, um, or the first editorial note that I got from my editor, uh, she said, wow, you've chosen violence with this one. And yes, <laughs> I absolutely did. Because I, I thought, you know, if we're going to do this, we're going to go all in. I'm not going to dance around it anymore. Okay, excellent. That That's a great starting point for this conversation. <laughs> I know you've mentioned ghosts, you've mentioned changelings, all of that stuff. We will talk about it, I promise. It's really, <laughs> let's face it, it's what everyone's listening for to hear all that stuff. But there are some things I want to talk about first so that we don't neglect them, I suppose. Sure. Over like 140 episodes of this show, by now I've covered a good number of texts that deal with the horrors of motherhood, particularly the horrors of the expectations placed upon mothers. That that seems to be a real recurrent theme. I'm thinking Julia Fine's The House Upstairs and Heltzel's Just Like Mother. They're two that come to mind. But that seems to be so obviously a major part of where you're starting from in this story that I thought I wanted to give you the opportunity to talk about your take on this and and why you wanted to address motherhood as a topic for horror. Yeah, totally. So um, it it is a recurring theme in the things that I write for uh, a couple of reasons. Number one, I, I am a mom. I have uh, two kids. They're teenagers now, um, one who is 16 and one who is 15. 
And for the first uh, five years or so of their lives, I was a single mom. I was a very young single mom. I uh, had my first daughter when I was 19. Uh, So motherhood has always been kind of chaotic for me. I, I, there's never been any, you know, uh, any idea that I ever knew what I was doing. I still to this Mm -hmm. day am just looking around going, I am screwing this up somehow. I don't know how, I don't know when, but I'm definitely screwing this up. Um, because there's no, you know, playbook for motherhood or parenthood in general. And just the idea of having these people's lives in your hands to shape them, to take care of them, to trust that, you know, whatever you do is not going to completely ruin their lives. It's a terrifying concept. But then there's also the fact that my own my own uh, relationship with my mother is largely complicated for a number of reasons. But that was one of the main, you know, the main reasons why motherhood to me is so scary because mm-hmm. it's, you know, I, I don't have a whole lot of, you know, great foundation to draw on. So it's all just, I'm just playing every day by ear and it's incredibly stressful and incredibly scary. Um, so it's, it's kind of, it's kind of nice for me. I know that's a weird way to say it, but it's nice for me to write these characters who are suffering in ways that maybe I'm not, or I had, and I overcame, um, to know that I'm not alone. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, I mean, I don't think, I've covered or even read a book that's been so willing to get into the physical toll of birth and mothering. Because there's a lot of stuff in this book that's great, you know, about expectations. There's a great line where it says that Olivia, the the, the protagonist, doesn't glow. You know, the sense that she's failing to be happy enough to, to meet the expectation of what young mums should be like. Right. But. On top of all of that, you've written some really quite brutal scenes of essentially body horror in parts. Yeah, and that is definitely not something I ever thought I would write. And even as I was writing it, the the term body horror didn't it didn't register. I wasn't thinking viscerally about body horror when I was writing it. I was just writing true things. Mm. <laughs> and some of some of it was was quite exaggerated for the sake of the story, but a lot of it is also very true and things that I have experienced or my friends have experienced and so I think that for some people who who know the truth of it, that's where the real the real scariness is going to come from. Well, indeed, I mean, I often think this like that men need to create these really baroque sort of metaphors for birth you know whether it's the chest birth the scene or whether it's like the guy coming apart in the thing when he you know his cavity opens in his chest and stuff and yeah men need to find these really over the top visual metaphors when women are just like yeah yeah labor is its own horror we we really don't need tentacles and like six-legged monsters It, it it's a it's a thing in and of itself no absolutely yeah i i i've thought that as well and it's it's really funny to me because especially men who have, you know, who are parents who have been in the room with their wives or their their partners who have given birth and they still don't <laughs> they still don't see it for what it is that it is a horrifying experience that it is an experience that can kill you and has killed mm. many many women throughout the years. I I don't know. I I think that's one of the reasons why I really wanted to lean into um, the physical aspects of of birth and even nursing, how it's it's this, you know, 
takeover of your body that that society says you you have to do this. This is the important thing. Be selfless. Give your entire self to this new human because we said so. And if you were to say that to any man that you have to now carry, you know, this thing on your shoulder for, you know, the next however long and it's going to feed off of you and you're going to lose your hair maybe and you're going to feel sick all the time you would be so scared. Mm. <laughs> you would totally like lose your mind. So yeah, I, I'm, I'm actually really glad to see, um, you mentioned a couple other books, like, uh, what was it just like home and the upstairs house. I am so excited to see all of these, you know, mother horror books coming out in the last couple of years, because it's, it's very gratifying to me. I really enjoy how you, sort of intentionally strip away any vanity or, or cosmetics about, about motherhood and labour. Because in the very first scene, a nurse says about Olivia's episiotomy, um, the quote is, you'll want to avoid wiping whilst that heals. We'll send you home with a bottle of stool softener and a fun little squeeze bottle. You'll be fine. And I just thought that's a glimpse of reality we don't usually get in these stories. Yeah, I... <laughs> I, I got a little bit of pushback on that because um, I, I don't even remember what the note was exactly. It was something about people don't like to read about poop. And I said, well, that's why I'm leaving it in there Yeah, yeah. <laughs> because it, it needs to be there. It's it's apart from, oh, your body gets stretched out. Oh, you know, your nipples, this and your nursing and your whatever. There is so much more going on that maybe people aren't aware of. And if nothing else, even if it doesn't horrify people to know that. At least it'll make, you know, anyone who didn't know before, maybe a little more cognizant of, oh, of course, of course that would happen. You know, <laughs> a little yeah, more well, Of course, yeah. And like the real body horror is that stuff, isn't it? It's not, you know, I think often, you know, this like, like worry woman thing where it's, yeah, your body bends, your body stretches, your body tears and things like that. But it's all presenting this kind of warrior battle-like metaphor. Um, which is its own kind of cosmetic. It's its own kind of putting a filter over it. Whereas talking about stool softener is the real gritty sort of undercurrent of what this actually takes. And I think that's important to, to dispense with any, any layer of artifice about this stuff. Right. Yeah. And I, and I think so too. I think it, it lent um, uh, a little more reality to, mm. to Olivia's story, which, which was kind of the goal for me. Yeah. Well, moving from the from the real to the, well, perhaps not so real, but who knows? Um, all of that raw physical horror goes hand in hand with the supernatural aspects of the story, right? So let's introduce this. You have this central figure who haunts two timelines, the black-haired woman. Now, I don't know how much to say about her or what would constitute a spoiler. So would you like to talk about it? Would you like to say what you want to say about the black-haired woman. Sure. So the black-haired woman for me when I was writing her is um, she kind of represents all of those things that you don't want to acknowledge about yourself, whether the things that you think or the things that you do that you know that you shouldn't um, because you're told that you shouldn't. She is the She is the woman who tells you when you're looking in the mirror, God, you look like shit. How How is it that you look so terrible? You gave birth six weeks ago. You look horrible. Your baby is crying. How dare you let your baby cry? How dare you not bend and break your body to the point of, of 
complete disrepair for the sake of this child when inwardly you're just thinking i i can't how can i i can't if i if i'm if i'm not present if i'm not physically capable how can i possibly care for this child but the black-haired woman will look you in the eye and say you have to there is no choice and so when she follows both of these women she also serves as um kind of the the tie between the two of them that as as you know separate as Olivia and her mother have been for all of their lives there is this black-haired woman that existed in both of their lives so there is that um genetic but also otherworldly tie between the two of them I could never work out whether she is primarily a real haunting literal presence or a kind of metaphor for the social and internal pressure around motherhood to be the best mother, to be the perfect mother. I couldn't work out worse if that's a spectrum from real to metaphorical. I could never quite work out where she was. She seemed to bounce around. Is that fair to say? No, absolutely. And and that's um, partially on purpose. Um, I Like I mentioned before, I really love an allegory, um, but sometimes that allegory needs a, a physical anchoring. And so the black-haired woman for me is that she is a physical presence for these women, but she serves as a vehicle for, for the metaphor of postpartum depression. She is the... The, the voice in your head, the things you see, the things you hear, the things you tell yourself. But for um, Shannon and Olivia, she had to be a physical presence for mm-hmm. purely technical, you know, a technical standpoint. They, they needed something to interact with to make it make sense, but also to kind of give that, you know, to translate that that feeling without it being too preachy, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Have you read Christy Demeester's Such a Pretty Smile by any chance? I have not. It is on my list. It's I'm staring at it right now. It's in my cart. <laughs> it's a fabulous um, book. But yeah. But I think she does something similar with well, if you haven't read it, I won't spoil it, but there is um a sort of phenomenon in that book. And I think I asked Christy the same question. Is it a metaphor or is it literal? And it's the same sort of thing. Um it's a male presence, but it again it performs both a cold, hard physical threat in certain people's world but also functions as a metaphor um for for the reader and for you know the world of the stop of the story and i think that's cool because it, it allows you to be elusive with the rules of the of the monster doesn't it you know there's no there's no like rigorous framework by which she has to operate because she's bouncing from one status to another depending on the scene Right. And it and it makes it, um, in my opinion, as a reader, I, I enjoy that kind of thing because mm-hmm. then there's no one way to interpret it. Um, yeah. You can you can take her actions as as whatever you like, whatever it means for you in the context of the story. And, and that is something that I really enjoy as a reader. Well, regardless of her status, she's unutterably creepy. And yeah. The, the book starts and I was like, oh, this is cool. Like all the physical stuff we talked about. Oh, this is like really like, you know, it's not pulling its punches. Excellent. And then she appears. And at first she's kind of like, a, you know, she's a kind of, did you see that thing in the corner of the eye? And then she progresses to this almost constant haunting presence. And I found her genuinely unnerving, but never more so than in, in her first real appearance when she's just, <laughs> It comes out of nowhere. She's just she's just a brown nail tapping on a car window. 
And then Olivia realizes she's on the roof of the car. Uh, that yes. scene just it really unnerved. It's so creepy. I, I don't really know why. <laughs> um, you know, I for for me, I I that scene was a like a literal translation of something that actually happened to me. Not that a woman was on my car, but um, I was. Uh, sitting in my car waiting for my children to get out of school. And it was a really quiet day. I was there a little bit early, got out of an, appoint an appointment. And I'm just sitting in my car. I'm reading a book and it happened to be a horror novel because of course. And um, I hear this like tapping on my window and I'm like, I look around, I'm freaked out. I have no idea what it is. I know there's a tree above me. And so I first dismiss it as, oh, a limb fell or, or something. Maybe it's a little windy, no big deal. And then it happened again. But the thing that scared the shit out of me was the fact that it was a very rhythmic tapping. It wasn't just a clatter. It wasn't anything like that. It was very rhythmic and felt on purpose. And I immediately drove away. <laughs> <laughs> circled the block a couple of times and came back and parked somewhere else and it didn't happen again. But it that feeling lived with me for a really long time and, and I'm really glad it made it into this book. I thought it was the perfect place for it because there's something about if you don't see it, that is more terrifying. You know it's there, but you can't see it. Yeah, yeah, because you want to drive back around and then see the thing it was and be like, oh, okay, it was just that thing. But when, the, when you can't answer the question, it gets creepier. Yeah. Right, yeah. exactly. I, honestly, that is the dream as an interviewer to say like that scene creeped me out not really have a question and then the guest just say oh yeah and that's based on this and it's really creepy that is the dream of as an interviewer so thank you well for that. It, you're no you're welcome and you know what a lot of it is that a lot of my writing is that is the case for me because I am a huge wuss and I spend all day alone in my very old, very haunted house. So I hear and see things all the time that scare me, but are perfect book fodder. Is it actually haunted? You know, I really think it is. And I think my ghost is incredibly energy conscious because if I leave the house, I purposely leave my office light on because I am that kind of person that I'm like, oh, if they see the lights on, they won't try to break into my house in the middle of the day. It's very dumb. But I will leave the light on. And when I come home, the light's off. Oh, wow. And wow. I know it's not my cat because she can't jump that high. Oh. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. So whoever the ghost is in my house, the, thank you. Save, saving my and energy you, and you I feel comfortable that. being there you're ha you're not gonna like move you're not you don't feel chased out like, i think i'd have a meltdown <laughs> no i i don't only because nothing you know particularly malevolent has happened i you know i i chat with my ghost occasionally and if it's just you know hey what do you think about this and of course nothing happens but i i feel like that i've established that camaraderie there so hopefully okay. nothing bad will happen well, yeah, fingers crossed. Well, right. going back to the, the ghost in this book, did you have an inspiration for the black-haired woman? Like, my visual reference for it, like, I kept thinking about Samara from The Ring, um, and I kept thinking particularly about the bent neck lady from Mike Flanagan's The Haunting of Hill House. Oh, the, the bent neck lady is definitely in there as, as the image, or one of the images, for sure, in my mind. Not necessarily... Um, that actress's face but mm -hmm. the just hovering there with her hair covering her face and you know she doesn't move but she has the potential for movement you could feel like that um that tension there mm -hmm. i suppose and and i definitely now i'm freaked out because <laughs> thinking mm -hmm. about that show scares me so viscerally um 
But yes, definitely. That is an image that I drew from for sure. Because there's a scene where she's, uh, where Olivia's in the hospital and she looks up and the woman is just there like hovering over the bed. And I, there's almost something in the grammar of that scene and, and in other scenes where it's almost like they're little jump scares where I don't quite know how you do it, but it's almost like when, when Olivia looks and just sees this woman who's just there looking at her, you, as reading it, I felt a little bit of the, the sort of the muscle sort of like tension that she feels when you see something that you didn't know was looking at you. And it, it feels very much like that scene in, in Hill House where the, the woman lands on the couch and then looks up and you see through her eyes that this thing is hovering inches from her face. There was something the grammar of your reveals that felt like that. Oh, thank you. I, I appreciate that. Yeah. Um, I, I feel like um, Mike Flanagan is kind of a master at that particular scene. I can think of another one with um, also from Hill House where Theo is laying on the couch and she's trying to determine, you know, the issue with the the little girl. She's struggling mm-hmm. mentally at home and she opens her eyes and sees the smiling face on the ceiling and Super quick background. My stepdad is a screenwriter. And so he and I talk about writing very occasionally. And when we talk, we talk always in terms of um, cinematic writing. Mm -hmm. So when I write scenes like that, where I can so very clearly see the scene in my head, I write it from a cinematic perspective. If I, if it were a a film or, or an episode of TV, how would that look to the viewer? And I think that's where that, that grammar comes from. I hope. (laughs) Well, speak about movie references, though. I mean, I mentioned Samara from The Ring there, and I've I've only just realised that I think the reason I'm probably thinking that is because of the well, because your blackhead woman is also linked to a well. Um, Though, are we ever told why she's linked to that well? Or do you just think wells are a cool and creepy motif? Um, I think it's uh, a little, uh, a little bit that, but also um, the the well for me, it's like it, it was a very far-reaching metaphor about the 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 well of feelings and the well. It's the it's significant that the well is on her family's property, and and I write a lot about breaking cycles, and then the a well is you know circular shaped. It's a very stretched metaphor. <laughs> I will admit that, but um, but yes, a lot of it is that it's it's just a very a creepy place. And I, I, from the moment I started writing, I started thinking about um, the light at the end of the tunnel. And then the image that came to me was just a woman looking up from the bottom of the well and seeing just this light and not really seeing anything else except knowing that the opening is there. She just has to get to it. And that image just stayed in the back of my mind throughout the writing. And so it just, I, there are some places where maybe yeah, I did shoehorn it a little bit, but it works. And and that image at the end was very important for me. It got me thinking about wells in horror, and again, all that as you were saying, the kind of you know they are they're kind of wide serving metaphors, aren't they, for things like plumbing into the subconscious, bringing things back up, all of that sort of stuff. Um, right. But they're also just kick ass. There's something just so creepy <laughs> about them. I, I don't know why. Maybe it goes back to fairy tale. Maybe it goes back to stuff you were saying at the start about how, you know, a lot of this stuff is bedded into fairy tales and how it's all interchangeable. Maybe maybe it's that. It's just part of our Jungian subconscious, maybe. Yeah, maybe. I I, I think that any story that you can think of, you can turn it into a horror story. You don't even have to do very much to it. 
I, I think that horror is kind of the the bedrock for for mm-hmm. all of our our stories in general. So I, I don't find um, the reach that far when it comes to taking any kind of you know any kind of situation, any story about you know motherhood or any fairy tale, and and pushing it into that into that direction because our minds want to go there. Mm-hmm. I think there's a reason that. Um, during, you know, these times of greatest upheaval, like during, you know, the the first year of COVID, that to me is when horror kind of took off in the mainstream more so than, you know, in preceding years. It's it's there's something about uncertainty and and, you know, this underlying fear that we want to explore, that we want to we want to see, you know, something bigger and more terrifying than what we have mm-hmm. living within ourselves. Yeah, there's another podcast I, I actually listened to and I guessed on it and it's called Who's There? Uh, and it's basically a, a podcast about horror where the Alison, the the host, asks people from the world of horror to go on and she goes through the, the same questions to every guest. And one of the questions is always like, you know, why do we watch horror as a people, as a, as a species? Why do we like it? And, and invariably the answer is that, is that people want some kind of meaning or some kind of horror that is more than the problems they've got so that their problems feel smaller in comparison, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And and we want to see people overcome because then it becomes, you know, more realistic that if they can overcome, mm-hmm. then of course I can too. But speaking about fairy tales and the bedrock of, of storytelling and all that sort of stuff, the aspect of this that, that goes back into yesteryear is the changeling, right? In, 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 Flora, yes. this little baby who wreaks such havoc on on Olivia's body, um, the changeling. Now, for any listeners who are unsure about what that term means, would would you like to explain what a changeling is and 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 how it fits into your story and why you want to write about it? Just have at it. Sure. Yeah. So, um, a changeling is a kind of creature from folklore traditionally associated with fairies. And I believe a lot of the original stories are uh, Celtic in origin or come from Ireland. And they are these, they're fairy babies more or less that are switched in the very early days of birth with um, human babies. And the whole reason for them switching is because they want uh, humans to nurse and, um, feed and care for their babies so that they grow big and strong while um, the adult uh, baby kind of withers and possibly dies. Um, There have been a hundred different ways that in folklore that we talk about how to, you know, get your child back or to get rid of the changeling. Um, One of the one that was that most viscerally spoke to me was that if you chuck the (laughs) the changeling baby onto a fire, it will immediately be switched back to your baby and you can rescue it from the fire and it will be your, your child again and everything will be fine. And I just thought the image of that, how, how terrifying must the, the concept of a changeling be to people who would think, yes, I will risk it. I will throw this baby onto the fire. And even if it turns immediately back into my baby, it'll be a little bit, it'll be a little bit burnt, but it'll be okay. (laughs) They'll be injured, but they'll be my baby and it'll be fine. And I started thinking about um, how my my wife jokes all the time. They're horrible jokes. She jokes about how babies are parasites and she's not wrong on, you know, essentially. But um, 
those two ideas sort of came together for me that that uh, you know a baby is a parasite that's feeding off of you and they really are when you're when you're pregnant they you know all of their nutrients come from you i was incredibly calcium and iron deficient when i was pregnant with my first so i you know i was gray all the time and i couldn't keep anything down and it was just this horrible experience for me i hated being pregnant and then there's this creature of the changeling that their sole purpose is to take from you and how how perfect you know did those two concepts just kind of slide mm. together and it it just made perfect sense to me that how the story came to be you have to kind of explain away why am i feeling so horrible why do i feel like i'm falling apart when it's just a baby i'm supposed to be you know i'm supposed to be glowing and happy and and full and pink cheeked and everyone is supposed to be the healthiest they've ever been at this moment in time but i'm not so that something about this baby has to be wrong and it just it felt like the kind of story i could not not write it was perfect mm-hmm. for for sorting out my own feelings about pregnancy and birth because therapy is very expensive. So when you can't afford it, you write. And that is that is what I've you know, that's what I've done here. And it's I don't know, I, I finished writing the book more than a year ago and I'm still thinking about it, how how it felt and how Olivia must have felt and how Shannon must have felt. And and it's I, I hope that it's the kind of book that lingers for other people as well. Well, it's an it's an odd thing to say, right? Because like I couldn't be further from the the experiences of your protagonists, right? Right. But there is something the psychological claustrophobia of the way that Olivia, in particular, feels that really spoke to me. Obviously, not about not about children or babies, but the fact that all the way through she has this persistent doubt that Flora has been switched, but at the same time, a persistent doubt that maybe she's just crazy. Right. I am very subject to like weird, intrusive thoughts when my anxiety kicks off. And what I thought you'd captured brilliantly is like the cognitive dissonance of having, inverted commas, crazy thought, knowing that's a crazy thought, but not being able to get rid of it and also worrying that because you've had a crazy thought, you might be crazy. Do you know what I mean? It's like, it feels like a trap. And reading it was, at times, I found it quite a oppressive, claustrophobic thing. I could, I could feel her panic within this situation. Right. And it's 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 one of those situations where the, the thing that really contributes to it is, well, there's two things, really. One is the the not-so-supportive partner part where her, her wife is kind of pandering to the logical side of Olivia, where she's, you know you're, you're being a little crazy and everything's going to be okay. And, you know, trying to distance her from this past that Olivia keeps trying to fall back into, if only because it begins to make sense to her. It's easy to convince yourself of a thing if um, you've experienced it once before, or someone else has experienced it once before. When we're, when we're looking for an explanation. If we find someone else, oh no, I've lived through that. Or, oh no, I know exactly what you mean. You cling to that, especially if you have no other basis for for solid ground under your feet. And that's kind of what she does is she looks to her mother's experience, this, this situation that she had pushed to the side as just the actions of an insane mother who she has not had any contact with. But now because it's, it's so prevalent in there and as it goes on and she draws um, parallels between her experiences and her mother's experiences. She she uses that as 
some kind of proof that, yes, this has to be happening because, look, it happened before. And it's really easy to fall into that trap, like you said. Yeah, well, we we haven't really talked about the other strand of this story that, you know, because you've got Olivia's third person narration and then you've got her mother, Shannon, who's telling her own story from if you, within an institution, basically. Um, it struck me as interesting that you gave Shannon an Irish name considering the Celtic root of the changeling law. Was that intentional? It was, and it was kind of a uh, a nod to my grandmother's family as well. She right. she is, or she was Irish. So um, I I was pulling a little bit from my own experience that way as well. Like, what is it like growing up in, in an Irish Catholic household? Because I know that very well. <laughs> Right, okay. Well, just as Olivia thinks that Flora may have been switched, Shannon, in turn, back in the day, thought that Olivia had been switched. And these two narratives intertwine and come together. And when, and by the end of the novel, we do get some sense of resolution. But I still wasn't entirely sure, even at the end, if we knew for sure whether the changeling aspect was a kind of shared generational psychological problem or whether there was some genuine weirdness at play is that an intentional ambiguity or am I just a bad reader no it was it was definitely intentional um I I wanted to include aspects of other characters in in the the novel that experience this or kind of allude to experiencing the same thing so you kind of get the sense that it exists outside of their you know genetic bubble uh, mm-hmm. but I also wanted it to be incredibly personal to Olivia's story because that's what makes it believable for her is it's if if it if it happened to or if she heard the story from someone who was not her mother or not her grandmother she maybe wouldn't have been so inclined as to believe it as she Mm. is that it's it's within her family line if it's in your family line then it's your your you know predestined for this to happen to you and there's nothing you can do about it and that's a much easier um line of thinking to fall into if you're being fatalistic is a lot easier than trying to sort through the logic of anything. Um, so yeah, that was on purpose to, to give her that false basis of truth. Yeah. Cause, it, Cause it's scary either way, right? I mean, it's scary if they've got a sort of demonic presence switching their babies. And it's also really scary if they just have some kind of illness and that's generational because have you ever heard of cat grass syndrome? I have not. What is that? So, cat, it's one of these things that's kind of like a, a, a mental health diagnosis that I think has become a bit of a pulp genre trope. But it's it's basically a genuine um, mental condition in which you think that people in your lives have been replaced by exact replicas. And oh. there have been cases where people have cut people open to try and find the wires because quite often people think they're robots that have been replaced by robots. You know what I mean? And and I yeah. think that the if there is some truth to the... When I say truth to the changing law and not truth to the fact that fairies are switching babies, that, that this is a thing that goes back through time as a thing that people believe. Yeah. To me, it feels like just a, a kind of capgrass syndrome that's informed by a different cultural zeitgeist. You know what I mean? In the way that we used to have fairy abductions, then we have alien abductions. It feels like we used to have changeling syndrome and now we've got capgrass syndrome because we now live in a technological world rather than a fairy-led world. 
you know? Right, exactly. Because fairies are are obviously fairy tales, but robots exist. So this is exact. This could happen. Yeah, no, I definitely see that. And next, it could be, oh, it's an AI person or something. You can see these things right. just go on and go on and go on. But that's every bit as scary as, oh, there's a ghost following me around. Losing yourself to the point where you may wake up one day and not believe that your wife is your wife. That's a terrifying prospect. It is. And there's there's a book that I I read um I read the arc to and I am blanking on the title now and I feel so bad about it but I'm going to find I'm going to find out and I will bring it up again later as soon as mm-hmm. I figure it out but there is a book that is going to be coming out later this year um by Caitlin Starling who did um the death of Jane Lawrence and it is very mm-hmm. similar to that where it's it's a kind of you know this is not the person who I think it is but it's it's herself it's it's very good I'll find the title in a bit Okay, that's fine. Um, I mean, before we move on from Changelings, I've just got to say, because I want to give the, author, uh, the, the listeners a chance to go away and read about this, but have you ever heard of the story of Bridget Cleary? No, I am intrigued. I do this sometimes on this show. It's always a bit pompous. I just start telling the guests like things about <laughs> their own book. It, it's always a bit cringe, but I've got to bring this up because it's too cool. Uh, it's a genuine, true case of someone, well, it sounds a bit grim, but an an adult woman called Bridget Cleary, who was burned to death by her husband and father in 1895 because they became convinced she'd been switched by a fairy. Wow. Actually, you know what? It sounds incredibly familiar. And I wonder if, I don't know if you've read the book by Hannah Kent called The Good People. And it is- based on something very similar to that it is uh it is also based on a true story and i think it might be this one because it sounds familiar but the name doesn't ring a bell i first heard about it on, on the one of these law podcasts years ago mm-hmm. and just it gave me chills because because she's an adult and her husband's an, an adult and it just seems like one of these again like it's obviously obviously a, a, a case of someone's mental illness you know and but it, it's compounded by this this rich lore that i find that you know bring that all the way forward to like the slender man killings when those kids tried to murder that it's the same thing isn't it you know it's when when lore kind of gets its tendrils into your mind that i find that so scary that we are capable that stories are capable of doing that much damage you know And, and that's why your book is scary whether it's psychological or supernatural Right. I think that is one of the things that I I love about stories so much. And I don't know what this says about me, that it's more fascinating than terrifying when Mm -hmm. a story can take you over so completely that you you believe it so deeply that you will you will do these horrendous things for fear of retribution from this, you know, fictional monster. It's it's fascinating to me. And I I, I don't want to say that I hope one day someone will do a horrible thing based on something I've written, but I, I would like to know <laughs> that someone has read something I've I've written and it disturbs them in a way mm. that they're not quite sure how to name. I, I think that would be a, that's a personal goal for me. I know what you mean. It's like, you want to know your book's got the power to do it, but ideally not with the outcome. <laughs> right. Correct. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. Picking up on something you mentioned in passing a few questions ago, you mentioned about Olivia's partner, Chris, being unsupportive or not as not as great as she could be. Um, and I'm really interested in Chris. And I, I'm interested in the fact that Olivia is in a same-sex relationship. Now, I know you are yourself, and some of this will just be a reflection of you writing your own experience. But right. 
in, ter- in, in terms of this particular story, I wondered whether the fact that Olivia and Chris conceive through artificial insemination gives some kind of ammunition to the changeling delusion. Because Olivia mentions that she'll never know who the father is. So does that, in some subtle way, add to the possible doubt over her child? Or am I going too far? No, it, it absolutely does. Um, I, I think I was playing a little bit on the idea that um, these these bigots who will come out and say that, you know, uh, same-sex parents aren't really parents mm. regardless of whether they've given birth or not and and I I wanted to kind of take that and and give Olivia this kind of internalized never really voiced but internalized you know doubt um that I'm sure she would have had or dealt with leading up through her pregnancy or leading up to getting pregnant um because when you're in a same-sex partnership and you're trying to have a child the the process is so incredibly demanding and so difficult, um, especially if you don't have children from a previous relationship like I did. Um, it becomes um, its own monster in and of itself, I would think. It's 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 that, that whisper in the back of your head that you're not really the parent. And I think that would have definitely fed into her, her delusion, I suppose. Mm-hmm. While we're on the subject of sort of gender and her, her, marriage maybe i'm reading too much into this right but there's something (laughs) interesting in this book about how you seem to to me at least to flip traditional character roles to gender flip those roles so let me give you two examples right olivia's wife chris is referred to repeatedly as the husband sometimes it's a joke but other times like they have a dinner party where chris is automatically put in a camp with the, the the guest husband it's like the wives and the husbands and that doesn't feel like a joke and then right and then chris also later on turns out to be someone who if not malignant at least has a, a kind of authority that she sometimes misuses similarly there's a manipulative psychiatrist called angela who basically mansplains to olivia throughout right <laughs> i really like those things and both Chris and Angela feel like characters from a classic paranoid sort of Hitchcockian thriller. And mm-hmm. those characters would usually represent the threat of patriarchy, the doctor and the husband. But here you've made them women and it felt intentional. Yes, it is quite intentional. Um, the with, with Chris, it was very important for me to um, represent uh, the toxic side of falling into um, traditional gender roles. My, my wife and I mm-hmm. talk about this quite often. Um, there are, you know, some instances where she will, she she is, quote, the man because she is the one who takes out the garbage. She does the gardening. Like she, she mows the lawn. She does, you know, all of those traditional boy things. But there are other times where she is, she is concerned to walk into a women's bathroom because everyone's going to freak out on her because she looks so masculine that I have to be like the protector person. And it's, it's important. I've always felt in, you know, just as an aside with those types of uh, same sex relationships, that there's some flexibility in your roles because you're not men, you're both, you know, women, as far as, you know, a, a lesbian relationship goes. And I wanted to kind of show 
how hard that can be, especially um, in that situation where it's Olivia's mom now. She's not a woman. She's mom. Mm -hmm. So that makes Chris dad. And what does dad do in these particular situations? What is traditionally the dad role? And she just kind of sinks into it, usually for the worse. And then um, with Angela, um, I thought it would be fun. <laughs> I don't know if fun is the right word. I thought it would be fun to kind of to to poke the idea that, you know, it, a lot of the the struggles that women encounter when they are pregnant or in in life in general is how we are uh, perceived by other women. We are incredibly cruel to one another where where men are, you know, they're they can be aggressive and, you know, all the traditionally toxic things. Women will will poke in the soft places. We will, you know, what what is it my wife says? She says, men will beat the hell out of you, but women will ruin your life. And <laughs> that is something that I wanted to kind of, I, I wanted to show that it's drawing on that traditional Hitchcockian storyline, like you were saying, where it's, you have the, the doctor, but traditionally it's a man. In this case, I wanted to show it's not just men that will do it. Uh, you can, it's even worse when you look to another woman and you, you want to say, look at me, I'm suffering. Trust me, listen to me. And she doesn't. Where do you go from there? There's no one left. Mm. Yeah. Cause I kept thinking of the scene in Rosemary's baby. I know it's not Hitchcock, but one of the most frightening, like claustrophobic scenes in all of horror is that scene in Rosemary's baby when she goes to the doctor and she thinks she's escaped. And then the doctor mm -hmm. hands her over to her husband. And it, it's like, it's the classic scene of sort of patriarchal trap, you know, these men in right. rooms together. And that's all I could think of when I read those scenes with Angela is that this is so interesting because it's the same dynamic completely, but it's, it's woman on woman violence, you know? Um, yeah. It's, it's, it's people in positions of power who mm. have ulterior motives is, is where that's really coming from. Yeah. Well, speaking of people in power or, or very much not in power, <laughs> one of the most compelling parts of Shannon's narrative, because even though we've got two timelines, we've got Olivia and Shannon, within Shannon's narrative, there are multiple timelines where she's going back and forth in her, in her own history. Mm -hmm. And she talks about when, as a young unwed mother, she ends up volunteering in a home for other unwed mothers or those mm -hmm. who've hurt their children or things like that. And I really enjoyed those scenes for a, well, a couple of reasons. But first of all, they feel like they could be set in the 30s or the 50s, even though they're actually, I think it's the 90s or the late 80s. Right. And that's truly horrific. <laughs> right? You you think that these, these institutions don't exist anymore because mm. they feel so antiquated. But the research that I did before writing this, because I, I did not want it to feel too contrived that, oh, well, this doesn't happen anymore. It does happen. <laughs> and it's yeah. really scary how often it does happen. Um, so I, I kind of wanted to, to bring that to the table that it does feel very antiquated, but it's, you know, this is very still, this is a current thing that happens to to women who are pushed aside. Well, I'm buying this book for my mum. Excellent. <laughs> my mum was a psychiatric nurse for like 40 years. And she specialised in geriatric care in institutions. And obviously she that, that would have been in the mid 80s, I think. Um, and right. she, she tells me these stories of women 
who were like in their 70s and 80s and they'd spent their entire lives in these institutions because they had a child out of wedlock. They weren't mentally ill. Yep. They, they just got handed over when they were young and the system devoured them and they went from, you know, a home like like the one that um, Shannon is working in to, to a medical mm-hmm. facility and ended up in these hospitals, these huge old Victorian asylums that had never changed, you know. Um, mm-hmm. Spent their entire... And I just... As a kid, I found that just the most frightening thing that an institution could devour you alive, even if you're not unwell. You just broke a kind of prohibited behavior for the time. Yeah, and it's it's a really hard thing to think about. When I was doing the research for this book, I I, I could not stop myself from falling down the rabbit hole uh-huh. of, of stories just like that. And it's... I don't know. It's it's a really heartbreaking thing. And and writing about it was important, I felt, because, I, again, I didn't want this book to be a preachy book. I like books that are entertaining. I like books that, you know, make you think a little bit, but also kind of pull you out of reality. But with this particular book, I felt like it it, it needed that punch of reality. And those scenes with um, Shannon in the institution um, at Bethany House, just trying to, you know, sort through her own issues while being surrounded by women who have their own issues and, and, and seeing the kind of impossibility of, you know, a, a future where she can just live, you know, with her daughter mm. in peace somewhere else. It's, I, I felt like that needed to be there. It was very integral to, to Shannon's character. Yeah, it's, it's as horrifying as anything else in the book, really. It's just the, the, the kind of implication of the, all these all these women's lives that we're not finding out details about. Like, Christ, what what have they been through that we don't even know? And then there's Jennifer, who she meets later, who's had some horrible yeah. experiences. And yeah, oh, it, it's it's very gothic, isn't it? It's it's a weird kind of contemporary gothic that feels like a, a moral kind of hangover from the past. Yeah, and and my my favorite thing about. Um stories like this and and just stories in general is seeing how um we can't ever really shake off the past completely it's always there mm. kind of you know in the back of our heads like the black-haired woman she's just she's just there well here's my last question about the book right and it's you give me a perfect setup but <laughs> one of the coolest reveals of the dual narrative is that multiple generations of women in this family and others have experienced these events right whether supernatural or psychological as i keep reiterating now i know that your previous novel they drown our daughters dealt with a kind of intergenerational curse right and when i was reading graveyard i was also reminded of books like demister's such a pretty smile and rachel eve moulton's the insatiable volk sisters which i just read um Mm -hmm. both of those are about horror shared across female generations and it feels like a really hot topic at the moment and it may be unfair to ask you but do you have any thoughts on why that has become such a theme i i want to i don't even want to blame tiktok but i feel like tiktok has a really (laughs) like a, a foothold in this because our our generation of women and by our generation i mean women um in our 30s like mid to upper 30s we we are in this kind of unique position to break cycles we we have you know our our Gen X or boomer mothers who just kind of went through, they had their little rebellion, but they are, they lived the life that their mothers wanted for them and, you know, so on and so forth going through um, generations back. 
but we are in a very unique position where we we are the generation of of loud women. We are the generation of women who don't you know, don't smile specifically because someone told us to. We are the generation of women who, um, you know, we don't spank our kids. We we think about all of – we're in touch with who we are as people or trying to be anyway. And using that to break these cycles of, of abuse, you see the – the way TikTok comes into it, I see so many stories of women my age who go no contact with their parents and and the responses from their parents, like, how could you possibly, I'm your mother. And I, we are a generation of women who say, so? <laughs> <laughs> we, 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 we put up boundaries. And, and I, I feel like because we are in touch with that need and we know how to do it, we are putting that into practice and and because it's in you know the zeitgeist of our culture it's going to show up in our fiction and i love seeing it because it kind of gives some insight into the minds of women who maybe you know we're we're told that we're supposed to write fun stories we're supposed to write romance we're supposed to write you know things with a happy ending we're supposed to write you know all of these perky smiley things and and we don't and like my editor told me we just we go for the chokehold and I love it. I think it's great. And I think we're going to see more and more of it, especially when, you know, these Gen Z folks come up and they are, cause they're scary. <laughs> Let me tell you, <laughs> my, my children, they, I, I have, I encourage both of my children to, you know, speak up for any kind of injustice they see, or even to me, if I say something to them and they, you know, they ask me why my knee jerk reaction because my mother did was because I said so, but that's so unsatisfying. And I remember, you know, being younger and and thinking this is horrible. How am I supposed to function in life without knowing how life works? Because you just won't tell me because it's uncomfortable. And so we're crossing those uncomfortable boundaries and, and paving the way for, you know, the, the next generation to come up and really dig their heels into some of this stuff. And I'm, I'm very excited to see it. Well, indeed. Well, here's, you can do your bit then for either them or somebody else, because I always ask my guests to recommend a book and tell us why. So maybe it's a, a soon-to-be big Gen Z writer. Maybe it's from the 1890s, but can you recommend a book for us? Sure. So the first one I thought of is I when I – it's called If We Were Villains by M.L. Rio, and it's not horror, however. Don't worry about that. I keep seeing, the, I keep seeing this – all the time. And I don't know what it's about, but it keeps appearing in my life. So have a serious. It was the same for me. I would pass it in bookstores and see the cover. And I'm like, yeah, that looks all right. I don't know, whatever. And then a friend recommended it to me. And it is about um, this. uh, It's very gothic in nature where it's about these art students and they, there's a bunch of different programs. There's music, there's, you know, physical art, there's, you know, literature. And there it surrounds the story of these students who only study Shakespeare. They are deeply immersed into Shakespeare and they put on plays and it kind of as the main character is walking the grounds in the beginning of the school 10 years after he's been convicted of murder. And it tells you the story of what happened that night, but it also kind of lays the parallel to Shakespeare plays in a way that for someone who does not study Shakespeare very deeply it shows how terrifying 
those plays are, the aspects of it. Some of the things that you find in those plays are so, so scary. And there are a couple of scenes that just will live with me forever of these plays that they put on on the beach and everyone's wearing masks and, and, um, you know, there's there's blood in places and somebody's drowning in the background and nobody can tell if it's part of the play or it's actually happening. And the 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 way it feels just so tight and angry all of the time when you don't expect to feel tight and angry. It's a very disturbing book to read and you don't expect to be this disturbed. But at the end, I, I closed it and I cried for a good long time. And I have not read a book like that in a in far too long. So I highly recommend If We Were Villains by M.L. Rio. Awesome. And you are right about Shakespeare as well, because I obviously I come from an English lit background where Shakespeare was ruined for me. You know, just it was just driven. It was just pounding yeah. to the ground for me. It's the part I don't, yeah, I don't care. Leave me alone. And then I went to the Globe in London and I watched a live performance of Titus Andronicus. And I'm mm-hmm. like, this is basically an Eli Roth movie on a stage. You know, the violence in that play is overwhelming in terms of what they do and what. It, it, I, if you made it now, it'd be banned. Do you know what I mean? I was just like, oh my yes. god. Um, so yeah, so I I've gone back to Shakespeare because of that and and sort of mind it for its horror as well. So yeah, I think I'm perhaps a perfect audience right now to read that. Yeah, I, I definitely would. I feel like it's this book is is written for people uh, like that, like myself, who you know studied it in college and you just read it and it was incredibly boring. It's for those people who you know maybe needed to see you know maybe see it and have it explained to you in a way that's that's totally different. So it's it's very very good. Cool. Right, that can go straight on the uh, on the shopping list and the on the show notes. Last question, Katrina, and I'm going to do a whole supercut of these one of these days, but. What truly scares you? So it's actually really interesting that we spent most of the time mentioning this here and there. But the thing that scares me the most is the idea of losing my mind. Uh. I I am very often confronted with um, like the, the ghost who turns off the light. It's did I do it and I completely forgot? Mm. How did I forget that? Or I, I lose things constantly and um, – I will say something to my children, totally forget about it. And they'll say, oh, yeah, no, you said this. And I will have no memory of that whatsoever. And so I am constantly, you know, all of these little things add up. And and I am paranoid that I am losing my mind. So I do, you know, the, the puzzles and I read and I build the synapses and all that. And because I have a, a history of um, uh, dementia in my family. And so it's it's always there <laughs> lurking mm. in the back of my mind that there is a very strong possibility that I will lose everything and I don't know when or how it'll happen. So that that is the thing that scares me all the time. Well, that's very valid. And can I just say that comes across now that I know that I'm retrofitting that into the book in the scenes of absolute terror when Shannon thinks she's doing certain things and then finds out that she's not done them like with the pills and stuff that like, I'm assuming that's where a lot of that came from then. Yes, absolutely. It's, it's you, it's the idea that you are no longer yourself Mm -hmm. and you, it's not a, a, an issue of, you know, I'm, I've had a bad day. It's, it's gone. There's a piece of you that's gone. And what do you do about that? You can't do anything. Yeah. Just keep writing. That'll keep the brain ticking over. (laughs) 
Yes. <laughs> I'll do that. Just keep writing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I certainly hope you do because I I enjoyed this book immensely. I, As I said right Thank at the you. start, it's way scarier than I thought it was going to be. Um, and I, I really hope that it becomes a movie. And normally I don't say that because normally I'm, I'm a kind of lukewarm on ad- adaptations. But this one mm-hmm. is written in that cinematic grammar that you talked about. And it's kind of like half character study and half Hitchcockian pot-boiling thriller and i think it would make a great scary movie you know i really hope so (laughs) yeah yeah thank you um but for now katrina munro thank you for talking scared yeah my pleasure of all the novels i featured on the show that deal explicitly with the horrors of motherhood I think The Graveyard of Lost Children may be my favourite. I'm not going to rehash everything that Katrina and I just talked about, but it really does tease out all of the different kinds of horror embedded in that experience, or at least those that seem clear to me, a male reader without children. The mental distress is really well rendered. The societal pressures are just as well handled as any other book I've read of this kind. There's one scene where the protagonist goes, just just wants to go for a nice lunch out, have some tapas, and the looks from all the other mothers that she dared bring this child. Um, Yeah, it really strikes home how tough that situation must be. What an awful jungle it can be to navigate. But it's the body horror element that feels really fresh and honest and, yeah, brutal. Honestly, you want to talk about how literature is a tool for empathy. I became aware of my own nipples when reading this book in a way I never had before. (laughs) I'll just leave that comment there. Hopefully when you read the book, you'll get my meaning. I'm seeing a bit of ambiguity about release dates for Graveyard of Lost Children. It's definitely out today in the US, May the 9th, but I'm seeing everything from today all the way through to June for other territories, including the UK. That's going off Amazon, so who knows? Apologies if this episode comes out a while before you can read the book, but I do recommend that you do read it when you get the chance. Oh, and one piece of admin to clear up. Katrina mentioned a new book by Caitlin Starling that riffed on the Changeling lore that we talked about, but she didn't know the title. And I've dug into it, and the book is called Last to Leave the Room. And from what I can see, it's a science fiction take on the theme of the doppelganger and of bodily replacement. Now, I spoke with Caitlin about her occult novel, The Death of Jane Lawrence, way back in episode 60. You should go listen if you haven't. But based on that, I'm really intrigued to see what this new novel holds. Yeah, last to leave the room, out in October. But the changeling, this creature that links Katrina's graveyard to Caitlin's book, what a theme for horror that is. The idea of something replacing your most cherished loved one with an identical other. That's paranoia bottled down to its essence. Now, I've included a link to the story of Bridget Cleary in the show notes, and I do recommend checking that out because it's a chilling story that says as much about misogyny as it does folklore. But I'm also interested in other takes on the subject. We've got Victor Laval's The Changeling, which I can't recommend enough. For me, that's an honest masterwork of New York speculative fiction. 
There's also the phenomenal 80s movie, The Changeling, with George C. Scott, which isn't quite dealing with the same things at all, but it's shit your pants scary. And, well, just go watch it and tell me what you think of the wheelchair on the stairs scene. My hair nearly turned white. But what else have I missed? Tell me stories or point me in the direction of good books and movies. You can reach me via email at talkingscaredpod at gmail.com or on Twitter and Instagram at talkscaredpod and all correspondence is gleefully received. What else is gleefully received are reviews. They make a massive difference and I had a really nice one this week from Marine WKC that put some spring right in my step. Thanks for that and everyone else, yeah, please subscribe to Talking Scared and review me. I, I can take it. To repeat, if you want more Talking Scared, there's the Patreon via the link in the show notes, or just go to patreon.com slash talkingscaredpod. I'm going to upload another Hush Tones episode of Honest Thera Book Reviews this week. Next week, I'm back with a real kind of book of the moment, a zeitgeisty thing. It's called Death of a Bookseller by Alice Slater, and it's an ode to bookshops and bookselling and serial killer obsessions and grimy London nightlife. I loved it, and I really loved that conversation, so I I can't wait for you to hear it. Alice is just great. Until then, though, check in with your mother, learn to change a nappy, and let's pay our storytellers the wage they deserve. Read good books, and remember... It's good to be scared.